As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. We all stop to read something a hundred times a day and we're so busy that we never stop and actually ask ourselves, why of all the things that I just saw, what caught my attention about this? Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. My guest this week doesn't need much of an introduction. I'm speaking with Justin Welsh. Justin is known as one of the leading voices in the solopreneurship movement. And as a solopreneur himself, he's generated more than $5 million in revenue since 2019. Both his Twitter and LinkedIn accounts reach nearly half a million people, which is crazy. His newsletter, The Saturday Solopreneur, goes out to nearly 200,000 subscribers as well. And he was a guest on the show back in July of 2022 on episode number 109, where we spoke a lot about business as a game. That was one of the most popular episodes of this show. So if you enjoy this round two, I encourage you to go back to that episode and give it a listen as well. I'll link to it in the show notes. So I had Justin back on the show this week to discuss two things. First, I wanted to talk about his recent rebrand. Justin released a brand new website. The whole look of his online presence has been upgraded. And we chatted about that process, the risks involved, and why he decided to take it on. Now, I want to know, we had this conversation before he formally rolled it out. So you'll hear us kind of talking in uh, future tense, but you can see it live now at his website, justinwelsh.me. 
Second, I wanted to dig into his approach to social media. I mentioned that we had previously spoke about business as a game, but I think Justin is exceptionally good at treating social media like a game and winning it, (laughs) winning it by a lot. So we cover a lot of ground here, including Justin's approach to relationship building. So this episode is chock full of incredible insight and a few surprises as well. Like the idea that maybe fast growth isn't actually what you want. Building a movement takes time. I think you're exactly right. I actually have a slide in a product of mine where I say like 90% of the time, fast growth is actually a hindrance. And then there's this comment that I really wasn't expecting. I don't have social media on my phone. You don't have social media on your phone at all? No. What? So sit back. I hope you enjoy this full episode and I'd love to hear what you think about it. Tag me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. You can tag Justin as well at the Justin Welsh. Let us know that you're listening. Let us know if you want a round three. But now let's talk with Justin. All right, friend of the podcast, Justin Welsh back here with us today. I am excited to talk about your rebrand. Because one, I think rebrands are really interesting and usually for the better. Two, they don't go without some level of risk. So I'd love to hear from you what pushed you over the edge to say, hey, I want to put more thought into the Justin Welsh universe. Yeah, yeah. It's a great question and, and great to be back, Jay. So so good to talk to you, man. Um, I think it was a combination of a few things. I think number one, as my brand has grown online and I've been associated more and more with, you know, one person businesses, solopreneurship. I I didn't feel like my current website, which was designed and written by me on Kajabi. I just built it using a template. I didn't think that was capturing the essence of of a lot of the things that I was talking about. And, And second, I'm just design blind. Like I just, I don't know what colors go together. I don't know how fonts work together. You can see I'm sitting in a pretty empty room here, like not a whole whole lot of design going on in this room in my house. And so I wanted to like upgrade or professionalize the brand. That that was sort of the, the thing that was driving that. So as my audience expands off of social media and people are discovering me organically via Google or through a podcast like this, I wanted their very first impression not to be, oh, that looks terrible, <laughs> but instead to be like, oh, this is a really well done professional production. Those were sort of the two drivers of thinking through that. And then as I think about my brand long-term, you know, I think about things like books. I think about things like, you know, uh, YouTube series. And I want those to live in a place that I'm proud of. And I wasn't super proud of my brand and can't wait to get the, uh, the new one launched. What types of fears or uncertainties did you work through in this process? There's like two common fears, right? So, so one common fear is like customer facing where it's like, I roll it out and customers look at it and they say, this sucks. We hate it. (laughs) We liked your old branding better. I don't like these colors. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like you. There's a lot of like worry there. Um, I've, I've kicked the the project around to enough people that I trust to feel like we're, we're moving in the right direction and that we landed on something that, that really captures me. And I think the second thing, you know, obviously is from a revenue perspective, which is I make most of my living off of selling products on my website. And um, I know how those landing pages and product pages convert and at what rate and about how many sales I can expect each day. And redoing that entirely <laughs> is very nerve wracking. And I told the team that that I, I outsourced this to, I said, best case scenario, revenue goes up. There's there's a, a payoff for for investing in this brand. You know, an okay scenario is that I invest in the in the brand, I get professionalized and, you know, product sales stay about the same. 
Worst case scenario is I spend money, you know, the brand gets professionalized, but revenue drops significantly. And so if that happens, you know, it's not the end of the world. We'll just have to go back to the drawing board and figure out what's driving that. And so it'll be an iterative process over time. And at the scale you're operating at, that's like non-trivial, right? If you're if you're doing seven figures of digital product sales, then a decline in performance, that's like a, a scary thing. So how do you how do you think about monitoring that and taking action afterwards? Because like there's the there's the rip the band-aid and completely revert to what it was solution. Uh, and there's probably a whole spectrum of other things you could do. So how are you thinking about it? I mean, the, the first thing we're thinking about is, okay, we launch it and like, let's, let's give it some time because I made a, I made a, a move over to the platform that I'm on now before this rebrand two years ago. And like, I went from selling products on a card website that was integrated with Gumroad to Kajabi, which is all in one. And the first week I flipped over, like sales dropped. And I was like, oh my God, what a terrible mistake. I've got to revert back. And then like gave it some time and suddenly things ticked back up, whether it was just like, you know, it just happened to be like that, I think was is probably coincidental more than anything. So the first thing I want to do is I want to give it a lot of time. Uh, the, the second thing I want to do is, is kind of a, a quantitative and a qualitative analysis of why it's happening. So using some tools that we've installed on the website to see how users are spending their time. Why are they clicking away? Where are they clicking? Like, are there any spots that we're missing? That'll be just some, some data that we can, we can look at. And then like, I'm not shy about reaching out to people and saying, what do you think? Are you more likely to buy, less likely to buy? I saw, you know, you asked me a few questions about this product via email and you didn't end up buying. Was there something that was missing? Like, I think it's going to be a lot of just talking to prospects and customers and trying to get an understanding of why why they don't buy or do buy. So, so those are a, f- a few things that we'll do. Yes, ripping the Band-Aid off, like going back to the old platform would be a disastrous waste of time and money. But I do think there's a middle ground where we look at the new design, you know, make sure it's conversion friendly. And if we're finding that conversion goes down, it's like, how can we start slowly over time backtracking to a more familiar or similar design and structure? Because changing colors and fonts shouldn't really have that big of an impact. Changing the structure of a landing page might. So it's like we can backtrack within the design to get back to a relatively similar structure as before. But everything that I'm doing this year to invest in my brand, and this is the first year I'm really making a big investment, are things that should work. Like there are five or six things that I'm doing that should pay off. So if they don't, I would be pretty surprised, but I've been surprised before and I'll just go through and with a fine tooth comb and find out find out why it happened. Yeah, I mean- it's just hard to separate variables, right? Like yeah, even the time yeah. of year that you launched this could have totally. an impact on this. Macroeconomic conditions could have an impact on this. It's so hard to figure out like, okay, we know that conversion is up or down, but we don't know why. And it's so hard to isolate the why. And so making leaps like this, I think it's I think it's a good idea to say there's a bigger reason why I'm making this change. Like you're you're making yeah. this this upgrade, not because you're just focused on increasing conversion. You're saying, I right. want to professionalize the brand. There, there are other motivations here uh, at play. Yeah, this is this is a 10-year move. And I'm in a fortunate position where like, I don't have a board or investors or anyone to report back to on the, on the what happens, right? It's just me. So like, if sales fell by 50%, that would suck. It wouldn't be the end of the world. Whereas, you know, if a company makes an investment like this and they're backed by, you know, massive VC money and it fails, well, then there's a lot of people to answer to. But I answer to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Same. You mentioned a minute ago that you are design blind is what you said. And so a lot of the Justin Welsh brand, as we've come to know it, is black and white. And I wanted to call that out for folks because one, I think it's a really smart approach to take if you feel like you are design blind. Go with black and white 
maybe one accent color. Two, the downside is it's it's made your look and feel easy to imitate mm-hmm. a little bit. Is that part of the the brand decision as well? Yeah, maybe more subconsciously though. And like me choosing black and white, by the way, was like, I'm not the originator of that. I'm sure I stole that from somebody along the way, right? That I saw there's Jack Butchers of the world doing it very beautifully long before I did anything in black and white. Um, so, so credit to guys like that. But sure, you see a lot of like similar designs, similar colors. Um, you know, it's mysterious, I think. It's like it, a lot of people use it to get like very complicated and complex. And I'm not that brand. Like my, I'm not like, big, complicated, philosophical, Naval Ravikant guy. I'm practical, right? I try and give practical guidance to help people grow their one-person business. And so that black and white, I think, doesn't really come off in a way that I I want it to. And so we're, we're going to come with something similar. I just think it's going to be more beautiful, at the same time, more friendly, more welcoming, more simple. And I also wanted to build assets that are different than everybody. So like, if you log on to... Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it right now, you're going to see a lot of like pictures of like people holding their back with that, you know, big hurt spot that all the fitness guys use like 11 exercises to fix your back. Like everyone just looks the same. And so like, I want to bring something wildly different to, to that platform. If you go on LinkedIn, it's like, everybody's doing either Twitter carousels, which by the way, I'm guilty of, uh, or, or, you know, carousels that they've designed in Canva that they're spending a lot of time on. I want to do something different than that. I don't want to be the same, the the guy doing the same thing. So I'm, I'm working with that team to really think through like, what do some crisp, great assets look like? And I've started to drip those out and the feedback so far has been overwhelmingly, um, awesome and positive. Yeah. I've seen some blue hues in that yeah. content. So yeah. it seems like blue is a, is a part of the, the new brand. The color spectrum is huge. How did you start thinking about, well, what color or colors do I want to introduce into the Justin universe? I didn't. I started working with a, a designer that came recommended to me and he ultimately didn't end up being the right fit. And I was kind of sitting around thinking, okay, well, I want to move forward with this this design. And originally I had had a project that I thought I was going to kick off. I ended up not kicking it off. So there was some urgency behind it. And on Twitter, there was a guy, um, Andy Kennedy, who reached out to me cold uh, on DM and said like, your brand, the way it is today isn't doing you justice. And like, here's how I would rebuild your brand from the ground up. And it was a good enough write-up for me to take a meeting. And he impressed me with, uh, you know, everything that he told me, his discovery, his attention to detail. And so I entered into sort of that relationship and I essentially became the interview subject, the guinea pig. And so I spent a lot of time with him and his team getting interviewed, talking about what I saw the future of the brand looking like. And we just went through an iterative process where like round one, round two, round three, round four, it, it happened the same way it does with every designer. Like he came with design one. I was like, I hate this. And he's like, that's cool. That's part of the process. <laughs> and like over time it got better. And then it got really good. And I was like, dude, I love what you've extracted out of me here. And to the point where like my wife and I both looked at each other and we were like, Hey, this is awesome. This looks really, really good. And this represents my brand in a clean and in, in, in way that I can really appreciate. So that, that was, that was where the colors came from. Something that lodged in my mind years ago, David Perel like really took off on Twitter. He was one of the early like using Twitter as a thought leader people. 
And at some point he changed his profile photo and he published like how fearful he was about changing his headshot on Twitter. Because often when you're scrolling the feed, the thing that stops you is a recognizable photo of someone that you like their content. Are you, is your rebrand going to play through to even your headshot? No, <laughs> cause I'm older and fatter. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I, I went out to get that, that headshot. Um, you know, that was, that headshot was taken in 2019. Um, and I, I really worked hard to source the right photographer and the right background and the right feel and the right look. And I got that. And like, I was probably 38 now I'm 42. And it was like, maybe someday when I'm a little more confident in that one. But like for now that, that headshot seems to have done, done well for me. So I'm going to go ahead and stick with it. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a good move. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a underrated, scary thing. Like when I see people make headshot decisions kind of quickly, I'm just like, like you really, if you're going to do it, you really want to do it infrequently, I feel. And I've done it. I think it's been a decision for the better. But when I did it most recently, I had a gradient on the background that stayed. So there was like some visual element that was that was similar. After a quick break, Justin and I dig into his approach to social media. So stick around. We'll be right back. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I wanna tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. 
Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. And now back to my conversation with Justin Welsh. Well, I want to talk about social media generally because back on the last time you were on the show, we, we had a little bit where we talked about business as a game and that really resonated with listeners. And I'd love to think about uh, and talk about social media as a game a little bit because yeah. what I've seen from you is an ability to set your sights on a platform and just make it happen pretty quickly. And so what I want to get at is when you are looking at a new platform or a new opportunity, if you want to lay it out that way, how do you plan an approach to be so surgical, it seems, in, in finding a result? Yeah, I feel like the number two has been consistent uh, consistent in this for, for me so far, but like there are two pieces that I think are really important. One piece, and I talk about this a lot in, in some of my content, is like find somebody who's really good at it. Right. Like um, I, I went out and I started looking at like, who are the 30 best people on this platform? So to mention him again, um, you know, when I was living in Nashville in 2020, I came across Jack Butcher, who was really he was crushing it on Twitter at that time. I think he still is. I just he doesn't doesn't talk about the same stuff anymore. And so I don't come across it as often. But he was crushing it back then. And I went to his website and I'd never heard of him. And he had a 90 minute call for fifteen hundred bucks. And I was like, great, done. Booked the call with him. And then he wrote me a note and was like, I'm in Nashville. And I was like, oh, I'm in Nashville too. So went out and did the meeting at like a coffee shop and essentially spent 90 minutes just asking him what worked, right? Like find someone who knows what they're doing and ask them a bunch of questions. So I, I paid to like skip the line a little bit and to get some of that knowledge that was going to be really helpful. But that that knowledge is only helpful up to a point, right? Like knowledge is just a collection of what's worked for somebody else. It's pretty meaningless until you take action on it to figure out what works for you. And so the second thing that I did was on October 25th of 2021, I was like, okay, I'm going to start tweeting. So I tweeted on October 25th of 2021. And I had tweeted before, but like very, you know, like once a week or whatever, once a month. And I haven't missed since that date. So um, I've tweeted now, like whatever it is, 700 some days in a row. And so the second part of that was just finding what worked for me. And like, if you go back and look at like late 2021, as I'm getting started early 2022, a lot of it is like some of the stuff that you see with a lot of people who are getting started, a statement, like a bullet point list that gets longer, like very simplistic stuff, very thread boy driven stuff, like all the things that I saw working from other people. And like, I started to get a hang of what worked for other people and also worked for me. And there was a good sort of uh, crossover there. But as I got more confident in my writing, I started testing out styles that I felt comfortable with and that I thought were more authentic to me. And then I just started machine gunning. Like that was maybe the third the third thing where I was tweeting three or four times every single day, then retweeting those things nine hours later using Hype Fury. So it was just like constantly at the top of everyone's leaderboard. Every time they logged in, I wanted to be at the top of people's feed. And that started really accelerating. But like nothing overly complicated. Ask people who know what they're doing, what's working for them, and then just get after it and put in a ton of action. The data, that's maybe the last thing is like, I break down my data a lot. I look at a lot of my tweets, what works, what doesn't, what topics resonate, what days and times are best, what opening lines are best, what structures are best. I just kind of keep a running tally of things I discover. To give you an example, today I, I wrote a tweet 
and it bombed like so badly. And I couldn't figure out why it bombed so badly. And I read through and I had mentioned, made a mention of Twitter threads. And I realized that threads, which is now the competitor, is a word that is likely banned from, you know, in this new uh, free speech uh, platform that we're on. Um, and I was like, oh, make a mental note to like walk through every tweet that I tweet or X or whatever you want to call it in the future and make sure that it doesn't have any words that could be like Instagram or YouTube or threads or, or anything that can be misconstrued as a competitor to the platform. And so that's just like another learning I'll chalk up, put in my notion board and just like, you know, it'll be another process checklist, you know. I want to unpack a little bit more this this idea and this phrase of what's working for other people because people may be hearing that and intuiting it differently because there's a world where you look at the the landscape right now and you say okay what's working is AI I'm going to change my entire content strategy to just talk about AI and I don't think that's exactly what you're advocating for so when you're looking at what's working what does that mean to you correct R- really good um, um dig in there so um To me, what's working is based on the outcome of the individual. So for example, if you want to be popular for the sake of being popular, because you get a lot of dopamine, you get a rush from that dopamine or like go AI, right? Go talk about AI. That's hot. And then when something new happens, which will probably happen in two or three months, like be the guy or gal that talks about that thing. That's like what's working in this particular example. For me, working uh, is based on the context of my outcome, which is I wanted to build a tribe or a fan base that was really focused on being part of a movement. So even friends of mine like like Sahil, right? He's kind of more broad. He talks a lot. I mean, he kind of falls under productivity and living a great life. And so he's not super broad, but like he talks about things that are applicable to lots of people. So he can build a very broad, um, huge 1 million plus audience. That's not really my goal. My goal is to build like a, a big but tight audience who are who want to be part of a movement. So I went out and I started looking at people who I thought were creating movements. Again, Jack Butcher is a great uh, example. David Perel is a great example. He was building a movement around writing. And so like anyone who I could find who like had this tribe of people that were following them to say like, we want to go on this journey with this person together. That, that Those are the people that I was studying. Because to me, I want to make sure that I'm not just tweeting about 15 different things in a way that's popular. And so I get a bunch of followers who like find me entertaining or interesting. What I really want to do is I want to get a bunch of followers who believe in solopreneurship in the same way that I do. So all of my tweeting was focused on creating a movement. And I think initially I've heard you say you were looking at uh, the format of tweets quite a bit. You know, you, mm-hmm. you had maybe still have the product that gives people like some templates to start from. Is that still an effective strategy today? I wouldn't call that a strategy. I would call that a tactic inside of a larger strategy. So like, you know, the first thing you have to do is you have to figure out like, are you creating a movement? Are you being interesting? Are you just having broad appeal? Like what is your, are you latching onto something that's trending like AI? That's sort of the first question. The second thing is like, what kind of information do I want to share? Do I want to help people? Do I want to entertain people? Like, do I want to inspire people, motivate people? You know, do I want people to empathize with me or empathize with them, whatever it might be? That's sort of like the next thing that you want to figure out. Last, in in a small slice of this entire pie is like, okay, how do I take those two things I just talked about and deliver them in a vehicle that works really effectively? And so to me, it's not just like, oh, this structure works, so hammer, hammer this away. It's like, I have this really cool you know, sort of uh, thing that I'm, uh, this movement that I'm trying to create around solopreneurship because that's what I believe in. And then I have a lot of great information up here in my head around how to do that, right? So now it's like, 
if I'm creating a movement that I, I truly believe in, if I've got a lot of information that is, I think, extremely valuable, it would suck if I couldn't get that to the biggest number of people possible. And part of that, again, not the whole thing, is like what gets people to stop and pay attention. And a lot of that is how you architect you know, your writing. And so when I'm trying to figure out how to best architect that, one overlooked thing that I think a lot of people fail to do is we all stop to read something a hundred times a day and we're so busy that we never stop and actually ask ourselves, why of all the things that I just saw, what caught my attention about this? If you can do that 10 times a day and make notes of that, pretty soon you're going to be like, oh, there are some buckets here that all of these reasons fall into. And then you can just reverse engineer and say, I want, I want to re-architect those, those emotions in people when I, when I tweet or when I find the structure. And so I think about it from a very systematized perspective because that's just how I was trained in my previous you know, life. I love that. At one point I had, you know, those like uh, labels that you can print out of a printer and then slap on an envelope, your address or whatever. Uh, they're like a sticker. I had one of those on my wallet and I wrote on it, why are you buying this? And like one, it had a good effect on budgeting, but what it really had a good effect on was realizing what's going on in my brain right now that's convinced me that I'm going to spend money on something. And it was so enlightening to say like, okay, I just pulled out my credit card. Why? What, what? about this is happening? Is it that I feel a need? Is it that I feel convinced of something? So I love this idea of even pausing and having that reflection on things that capture your attention generally, because spending attention is spending. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually did the same for products that I bought. So there's a reason that four years into this journey, and, and you know, we talked a little pre-show about how this might be changing, but four years into this journey, like I've never been big on email automation. Like I don't do email nurturing. I don't do drip campaigns. I don't try and sell product or service using like a long form email, right? That like seven emails over 21 days or whatever it might be. That doesn't mean it doesn't work by the way. I'm sure it does. I think there's a lot of data to, to back, back the fact up that, that that works, but I started selling my products and services in a way that made sense to me from how I bought in the beginning. The first thing I ever bought online was Daniel Vasallo's Twitter course like two and a half years ago, three years ago. And I was like, why did I buy this? Like what, what caused me to buy this? And I thought, well, I've been following this guy on Twitter for a long time. I like his takes. I don't agree with all of them, but I generally like what he has to say. Um, he seems pretty trustworthy. It's relatively well-priced. It's got a money back guarantee. Like there's, there's no reason I shouldn't buy this. And so when I went to build my first products, I was like, let's do all those things. <laughs> Let, let's, let's be trustworthy, right? Let's be transparent. Let's build an audience that people will say, you know, I've been following Justin for a long time and now that he's got something to sell, I wanna buy that. And so I didn't, I didn't choose to do email marketing or things like that out of the gate. I just did what I knew and did what worked on me. And so I think we, we fail to stop and ask ourselves those questions as often as we should. I'd love to stay here for a second and jam on the idea of, trustworthy when it comes to being online and creating content? This is a question I get a lot, which is, well, how do I build trust? What is it about my content that engenders trust, that makes people feel that they can trust me? How do you think about trust when it comes to your content and the relationships you build online? I think it's not just trust, it's trust, expertise, and authority. And I think those three things are similar, but different. I've never really sat down and actually thought to break them all down, but maybe we'll do, just do it Let's do a time. So yeah, so so trust to me is a consistent source of information without an aggressive ask. So so for example, it's cliche, but it's like 
that person who constantly provides value without being like, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. So for example, you never see me ask people to buy my stuff. Like I just, I don't write, hey, flash sale, or hey, get the new product or the old product for 20% off today and today only. Like those just aren't things that I do. I try and get on every social media platform that I'm active on every day and do one of four things. Motivate people, challenge people, teach people, or empathize with people's situations. And so by doing that consistently without having an aggressive ask, like I believe that's building trust, which is different than expertise. And expertise is, I think, where you show off that, you know, you're not just a good writer on Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever you, you're not just a good picture taker on Instagram. Like you actually have knowledge that backs up, you know, this skill of getting attention. Some people can get a lot of attention and have no deliverability. They have no skills they can actually deliver on. Their work sucks, right? They're good at getting attention. You start working with them and you're like, holy cow, this is a mess. So I think um, expertise is just like, oh, this guy is really good at Twitter or LinkedIn. And now I'm working with him one-on-one or I bought one of his products and this stuff is like really, really great, right? So you're kind of showing your expertise. I do that, I think, through longer form tweets, through a lot of the LinkedIn content, through my newsletter, through the articles and guides that I produce. And then authority is probably a a more difficult one to unpack, but I think authority doesn't really come from me or from, from the person saying it, it comes from other people. So it's like, great, I trust this guy because he's been bringing value consistently. He's got expertise because everything I read of his is like detail-oriented, value-driven, tactical, practical. And then like authority is I log on to a platform on social media and every single day, I can't stop seeing this person's name because people are like, Uh, bought this guy's product, work with this guy one-on-one, unbelievable, incredible, transformational. Like, so those, those three slices of the pie, if you can nail those things, I mean, it's, it's hard to lose. And so that's how I think of trust, expertise, and authority. I like to relate things back to uh, real life interactions. When I started thinking about like, how do you create trust online? I started thinking, well, how is trust created offline? What's, what's happening between me and somebody else that makes me trust them? And it's basic stuff. Like, they show up when they say they're going to show up. Every experience I have with them is in alignment with my expectations, uh, usually that they have set. I'm not hearing questionable feedback about this person from other people, you know? Really, just anything that we do online, I feel like can be extrapolated from, oh, how does that, how is that done offline? Which we've done for, you know, centuries. But it takes a little bit of extrapolation and, and thinking in that way. A lot of it also, I think, is just time. You know, the longer you know somebody and have a positive relationship with them, the more you're going to trust them. So you can't just like start today and have a ton of deep trust with people who don't know you yet. <laughs> like, trust takes yeah. time. Yeah, it's you write this biography of yourself over the course of your, maybe it's an autobiography, I never knew the difference, but you, you, you write one of those two things uh, about yourself over the course of your career. And in one day, you can screw it up. Totally. I have written or said things online many times that I wish I hadn't, right? And so um, if I make a mistake, I apologize. Um, If I rub someone the wrong way, I try and learn why that happened. If I get into an argument with someone on social media, which I almost never do, like I try and learn from that, you know? Uh, But it's like, all you gotta do is show up and root for the people that you, you, you know, all these people claim to have these followers they care about. 
And if you don't root for them and if you don't show up when they're succeeding, like I go around Twitter and LinkedIn, try and find people who are growing their side hustle or building their online business or becoming that solopreneur that they've been really interested in doing and like sharing in their victory and their success and their growth. And I think, you know, we can't do it for everybody because obviously it, it just doesn't scale. But when you see an opportunity, like you got to participate in that. After one more quick break for our sponsors, Justin and I talk about his approach to relationship building, and I think you're really going to want to hear this. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com science. And now, please enjoy the rest of my conversation with Justin Welsh. Oh, and my dogs get involved here briefly as well, so sorry about that. Can you talk about that as part of your strategy or time allocation? How you're connecting with other people on your own posts, on other people's posts? Because you you go and look at something you tweet or something you put on LinkedIn, you look at the people that are commenting, and it's like, holy crap, these people are really well-known, admirable people in their own right. How did Justin build these relationships? I'd love to hear more about that. There's a bunch of different things that go into building successful relationships with creators that are popular or well-known or successful. One is, and I've always talked about this, if you want to build a great network, like be an interesting person and attract interesting people. So a lot of of networking is not like chasing, it's actually just attracting. And so I spend a tremendous amount of my time trying to show my expertise, right? Trying to show that I do know what I'm, I'm talking about and that I do have value to add to the ecosystem. So that acts as like, a, there's like a two-pronged attack built in there. One is when you do that, you go out and you attract a lot of followers, right? People will start to follow you and your numbers get bigger, but also the likelihood that somebody who's wildly successful sees that stuff just increases. And the more followers you get, the more impressions you get, the more that likelihood goes up until you kind of reach this like imaginary threshold. And for me, it was 70,000 followers on Twitter. We're like out of the woodwork, all of these big names started reaching out to me and saying, 
hey man, I saw your content. I really like it. I'm really digging it. Like we should get to know each other. Or, you know, hey man, uh, we, I, I comment on your stuff all the time and I see you comment on mine. Like let's take this relationship offline and jump on a Zoom. I don't, I don't remember exactly how we first chatted offline, but more than likely probably something similar to that. But that's how it happened with guys like Sahil Bloom and Greg Eisenberg and Dan Go and Dan Co. And it came from creating something of value and attracting them you know, to my, my profile. The other thing that I do is kind of the reverse of that, which is I see a lot of people making noise who I think will be future superstars, right? They're, they know a lot. They seem to be really, they speak my language, which is like they're kind, they're empathetic, they're not mean, they're not divisive, they're not polarizing. They're just like good people doing good work online. And I spend a lot of time reaching out to those people. So like in the last week, I've probably reached out and surprise, you know, quote unquote, like surprised five people who don't have huge followings and been like, you're awesome. We should jump on a Zoom call and get to know each other. And like, I hope to be that person like people have been to me that have been an accelerant in their journey. And I feel like if you're doing both of those things, you're 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 being interesting and attracting big creators, and then you're you're sort of nurturing and helping those those smaller creators who are just kind of earlier in their journey. You've kind of set up an ecosystem where it's hard not to be well regarded or liked or thought of, and that is you know that's my goal. Yeah, and that really adds up. If you did five this week, oh boy, public math, that would be two hundred and sixty. You know, two hundred sixty. Yeah, <laughs> you're like, let me do this for you, Jay. It's two hundred and sixty is the answer. Yeah. Two hundred and sixty people per year, and you've been doing this for years now. So that adds up really, really quickly, especially if these are targeted uh, relationships where you you believe in this person and their work, and some significant number of those people will continue to go on. And that's that's something that I feel like I have really missed in my own journey because I've been so focused on publishing. And you're right, like as you as you find more and more success with your own content, you get more people coming to you. And as an introvert, it gets really easy to be like, that's my strategy now. I'm just gonna wait for people to come to me. And I think that is a big, big miss. Yeah, that, that is that is, I would say, the majority of my strategy, right? From a sheer like volume standpoint, I'm certainly creating more content than I am sending out invites, but the invites that I send out are pretty powerful. Cause like, I think if we think back into our own lives, we all have a coach, a mentor, a peer, a colleague, a parent, a family member who was like the guy or gal that believed in us before other people did. And like the more I see people that I think are talented and reach out to them early on and say like, I think you're going somewhere really good. Why don't we jump on a, on a quick Zoom call and like, we'll get to know each other a little bit. I'll see if I can be helpful to you in your journey. Like you become that person and that person is easy to remember. And to be very clear, like it's not strategic trans transaction. It's not like, oh, I'm going to reach out to this person because someday down the road, this karmically will come back to me. That, that's not the reason. The reason is just like, I've been raised that way by my parents to like help people. You know, uh, if you see someone who has a lot of talent and they, they're not getting what they deserve to, to boost them, to lift them up on your shoulders. And so it feels great. <laughs> I was taught that, but in the end, like, of course, it comes back to you, right? You give a lot, you get a lot. And so I think it's a win-win-win all the way around for people, you know, who choose to do that. Yeah, I think it's easy. When we when we look at creators who are having the success that we want on whatever platform we're looking at, it's it's very easy to see like, okay, this person got comments from these people and those people are also getting comments from those people. 
And the easy conclusion is to say, well, that's just strategy. That's what matters is building these relationships and just commenting on each other's stuff. And I'm wondering how much of that is the intentional strategy versus the outcome of doing the work. You know what I mean? Totally. And and I'd be lying if, if I said it wasn't both. It's definitely both, right? It's like if you pick up an Adam Grant book or you pick up a book by, you know, James Patterson, the same authors, right? The, the totally. reviews on the back, right? Like there's a gang basically for, for lack of a better word of people that support one another. It's not like they just all got together over a cup of coffee at a diner and was like, let's all be authors, right? And, and, and that just didn't happen. What happened was one of them wrote a book and then another wrote a book. And then they said, your book was pretty great. Oh, your book was pretty great too. And then became friends and then they recruited other friends. And like, it just, that happens when you produce good stuff, right? And I get that a lot from people on the internet. They're like, oh, I saw that Dan Go commented on your stuff. That That's really, really helpful. It's like, sure, but I didn't know Dan when I had 4,000 followers and was pushing out a bunch of tweets that were getting three, three engagements. Like, it's not like that was the strategy from the beginning. That's just part of what happens over time and is part of the compounding that goes into, you know, producing a lot of good content. And I think a lot of people look around and they see these groups, these gangs, and they're like, man, if I could only get invited into that group, but that's probably the wrong approach. I would guess. Totally the wrong, totally the wrong approach. The approach is creating it and building it together. Yes, totally. I tell, I tell people this all the time. It's like, if you have a short-term mindset, your goal becomes like, how do I become friends with these five people? Right. And so you, you start to reach, you start to have this objective of like trying to create as much noise as you can. And like, Often, once those people get a certain number of followers or have a certain amount of success, like it's not that they're mean, they're just busy, right? They're just like, they just get busier and that's just human nature. Whereas the best thing that you could do is find five to seven of your friends and be like, let's go create our own gang, right? Let's go like, let's go take each thing that we all do separately because we all have different competencies and let's start writing about that stuff online. Let's start supporting one another and let's start meeting other smart people and and doing collaborations. Like that's what I would do if I were starting again, is like, I didn't even do that from the beginning. I wish I did. Like, I didn't have a a group or friends online. Like, I just, I didn't have anyone except for, you know, myself. And like, I guess Austin Belsack was like my first internet friend back in the day. And so I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of really cool people. But if I could do it again, I would like architect that intentionally from the beginning. Something I think you're really good at is continuing to innovate and figure out from a platform perspective, what's going to give my content, my idea, the best chance of reaching people, you know, things that were working from a tactic standpoint years ago, work less now, and maybe even get less interesting. And so what I think you're really good at is identifying when the time has come to change things up, and then figure out what will work now. Can you talk about your approach to figuring that out? Yeah, I wish I had like a really cool, sexy answer about how it was really regimented. Um, But I think it starts with knowing who and what I don't want to be online. So I, I don't consider myself to be much of a follower. Like I try not to have my content sound or look like other people's. I um, When I was in, in, in SaaS and tech before this, like I was generally in a position of leadership, right? Sales manager, director of sales, eventually VP and chief revenue officer. Like I always wanted to be the leader. And so it starts with being like, I don't want to be like these other people. So 
I would go on and see like top 10 books, top 10 movies, top 10 ads, best uh, 99% of people don't know how to use Twitter. Uh, here's a picture of Elon Musk and I'm going to Twitter's name a free three, university. Yeah, Twitter free university. These 10 books will give you more than an MBA. Like I, I just didn't want to be this guy who like had a lot of sizzle, but no steak. And, and by the way, I failed sometimes. There are some times where I've like fallen victim to that, right? Because you're not getting the engagement you want and you do something that's out of character for you. So I'm, I'm certainly not impervious to making a ton of those mistakes, but I think f first is a long-winded way of saying, what don't I want to be? And it's like, okay, well, if you don't want to be those things, <laughs> like what else is left? And it's like, well, authenticity, being genuine, writing in your own style. So here's the sexy part. It's throwing a bunch of shit against the wall and seeing what sticks. Like I tweet four to five times every single day. I try a bunch of different styles. I try different images. I try different things. And I think what I've noticed about a lot of creators, especially the bigger they get, is when they have like a quote unquote flop, they delete it. And so they're so fast to delete something. And instead, like, I don't know, I keep this running tally of like, I have this historical Twitter feed of everything I've ever tweeted, right? Maybe I'm sure I've deleted a few things here and there that I wish I didn't say or things like that. But like, I have this historical feed. So I can go back and look at my analytics and, you know, export my stuff and say like, cool, there are some trends here of what is starting to work for me. And then that is really my entire style is like, try a million different things. Also be cognizant of like we talked about before, what's getting me to stop? What am I seeing working that I think, um, you know, is, is in my authenticity wheelhouse. So that's really it. But as a reminder to everyone listening and, and, and even as a reminder to myself, this is my full-time job. I have the benefit of being able to do this 10 hours a day if I want to. Whereas people who work a full-time job, they're kind of just flying by the seat of their pants. And they don't have that that luxury. But if I could give any piece of advice in the beginning, it'd be form that little group because there's some really good feedback that you get from your friends, but also like keep a running tally of all the things that you say and do on the internet that like cause a ruckus and in a good way and try and repeat those things as often as possible, as long as they're leading to the right outcome. What's your relationship to Instagram right now? <laughs> I don't love Instagram. I've tried it a few times. I don't want to get sucked into that. I don't do a lot of consumption there because it makes me feel icky. Like it's a lot of like, you know, it's it's the this, this stuff you see on Twitter, but with really good looking people looking like they're living the best lives uh, humanly possible. I don't want to do that to my mental health, but I do believe that there's an opportunity to spread my message to a larger group of people that haven't seen it before. So for that, I have started creating there and then I stopped. I started creating, stopped, started creating, stopped. And like, mistakenly grew to 24,000 followers. If I'm going to do it again, which I probably will someday, I want to have like a strategy. I want to do it the right way. I want to approach it the same way that I've approached LinkedIn and Twitter. And I haven't had that conversation with anyone yet who's like really good at it. So the first thing that I got to do is find like a friend of mine who's excellent at it and isn't like super much younger than me. I had a conversation with a creator who's younger than me and he's like, okay, so you want to like pull open your reels and then you want to do that. I'm just like, I don't know what any of that stuff means. <laughs> I'm like super, super stupid when it comes to Instagram. I cannot figure out how to use it. Um, so I think it's like getting really educated on it, talking to somebody who's really smart about it, can explain it to me like I'm a kindergartner and then uh, making a go at, uh, of it when I'm, when I'm ready. What about threads? I got bored. Got bored? Yeah, I got bored and like, I don't know. It just seemed like, could I just copy and paste everything? Sure. But like, 
if I'm not going to participate in the conversation, didn't feel right to do. It's probably a similar answer to Instagram where it's like, when I'm ready to take it seriously, I will, but I'm not just going to like dump a bunch of content in there and then like not hang around. That's just not my style. You strike me as a uh, desktop person rather than a mobile person. Am I reading oh, that yeah. right? Treme well, laptop, but yeah, yeah, 100%. I don't yeah, do yeah, anything on my phone. I don't have social media on my phone. You don't have social media on your phone at all? No. What? I'm sure that's surprising a lot of people right now. Yeah, like if I had social media on my phone, I'd never get off my phone. Is this a new thing or has this been the way, the, this, this way for a while? It's probably been that way for eight or, eight or 10 months. So I, I keep social media apps off my phone. I put my phone on do not disturb 24 hours a day, seven days a week, except for my wife and my mom. Yeah, I do everything on a computer. Like I don't know how to design emojis on Instagram. I'm probably not even saying this stuff right. I don't know how to use Instagram stories. I don't know how to use Instagram reels. If that's a thing, I think it is. People are like, get this share and share that. And like, and I'm just like, I don't even know how to stitch together all that stuff. Like I'm, I'm so dumb when it comes to Instagram. And so I don't just want to show up and like do something in a mediocre fashion. I'd rather like really study it, talk to people, but I hate being on the phone, man. I hate mobile yeah, same. Inter internet. It's so frustrating <laughs> trying to take the, like, the speed of your thoughts and then replicate that speed with your thumbs. I can't do it. I need all 10 fingers. I can't type. Like I literally can't type on, I, I often tell my wife, like if, if there was a made up scenario or like someone had a gun to my head and they were like, you have to type Justin Welsh and get every letter right. And I was staring at the keyboard. It would come out like Justin Welsh. <laughs> it's just, it's incredibly frustrating how poorly, how poor I, I type on a phone. And so I do everything on my laptop. All right. Last question for you, Justin. I'm especially interested in your answer to this because like I was saying, I think you're really good at innovating on things. So what is, what is a hunch that you have right now in terms of what's working or where things are headed that you don't quite have data to support, but you're, you're still operating under? Well, there's maybe a couple of hunches and I think we're starting to see one. I don't have any data behind it, but I think we're going to move from sizzle, which is like, if you see a lot of like the stuff that was working a year ago or a year and a half ago on Twitter, where it's like, really sizzle threads, big, huge promise in the hook, and then like mediocre content as you went through it. I think people are tiring of that. I mean, I just know it anecdotally from what I see. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more authenticity first on Twitter, at least in like the creator space, right? Like in the political space and sports space and all that. I don't know. I don't play there, but like in the creator space, I think we're going to see a lot of like behind the scenes, building in public, wins and losses, real time, like what's happening in my business kind of stuff. I think the future of building businesses is going to be a lot like what Andrew Gazdecki is doing at acquire.com where it's like, it feels like every customer who makes a sale is featured there. Like Levels is, do, is doing that where he's constantly sharing the things that he's working on, what's working, what isn't. Like those are the people who I think are going to continue to grow organically really well. I think that that's a hunch that I have that is, again, I'm hearing anecdotally, and I, I think the data will, will back up. I also think platforms like LinkedIn are getting inundated, inundated with two things, carousels and selfies, right? Oh carousels, gosh. here's a yeah. carousel, and like, here's a, here's a random selfie that is irrelevant to the post. <laughs> um, and people are like, I'm winning, I'm winning, I'm winning. My engagement is going up, my engagement is going up, my engagement is going up. If you're on social media, and you're spending 10 hours a day on social media, and you're not making money or building a business, you are creating an absolute disastrous life for yourself. 
social media for the most part, it, it, it can be really fun. You can meet, meet great friends. There's a lot of benefits to it, but being addicted to social media is poison. And so like, if you find yourself just being addicted to likes and comments for the next 10 years of your life without turning it into something meaningful that supports your, your family or turning it into something where you're meeting like 10 really great friends all the time and doing really interesting work together, I actually just think you're poisoning yourself. And so it's great to see these selfies and these carousels because they've, they've replaced like quality marketing. They've replaced like creating a movement, being valuable, right? It's more about catching attention. But what I see, and this is maybe a third hunch and it kind of translates really, transitions really well into this third hunch is like, I know personally a lot of people who have built big followings, 400,000, 500,000, a million more than me doing things like beautiful carousels, taking a lot of selfies. But when I ask people or I ask, first of all, they're making almost no money. They don't have a good thriving business. And when I ask people, what do you think about when you think about X person? They're like, they can't really tell me. They can't really tell me the thing that person does. Yeah. And if you just want attention and like, that's all it's, if you're just after vanity, I think 10 years from now, you're going to be living in a really depressed state. Whereas if you're building a business and making a ton of friends, I think there's at least meaning behind some of that dopamine and what I think is actually poison. I think about this a lot because I agree with you. It is poison, especially if your engagement is based on your face or your appearance. What happens when engagement goes down? How are you feeling about yourself? But the other thing is, I think there is actually a big risk to growing your following too quickly because if you don't have something to back it up and then you've reached your total addressable market or close to it, when you do find your thing and you're trying to get attention, you might have, your account, we'll say, might have already kind of peaked and it might be hard to get that attention back from the people that clicked follow at some point but have since stopped paying attention and your stuff may not actually be getting seen by anybody anymore. I've been really comforted lately by being happy with staying on the come up for as long as I can, because that's like an exciting place to be when things are slowly but surely moving in the right direction, because I feel like I don't even have everything on the back end where I want it to be if I like was suddenly thrust into the spotlight of some kind. That's right. B building a movement takes time. I think you're exactly right. I actually have a slide in a product of mine where I say like 90% of the time, fast growth is actually a hindrance where it's like, you see these guys and gals, right? They come on, they're like, I grew to 600,000 followers in six months. It's like, okay, what was the outcome of that? So what now, what do you have for that? Besides like, you can tell people about that. Whereas if you grow really slowly over the course of time and you eventually become big, you can feel pretty confident that like that movement is spreading word of mouth. That movement is people telling other people is that your content's getting dramatically better over time. Like I just always think it's almost like startups, right? Growth at all costs comes with a lot of downside, slow, sustainable growth, profitable growth over time comes with a lot of upside. I would encourage people to think about it that way. People are always like, how do I get to 100,000 followers? I'm only at 10,000. I'm like, do the things that got you to 10,000 and do them 10 times longer. That's how you get there. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Justin as much as I did. If so, tag us both on Twitter and let us know that you enjoyed it and that you'd like to hear around three. 
You can tag me at jklaus, and Justin is at the Justin Welsh. If you want to learn more about Justin, I recommend you sign up for his newsletter, The Saturday Solopreneur, at justinwelsh.me. You can also find him on Twitter at the Justin Welsh or on LinkedIn by searching for Justin Welsh. Thanks to Justin for being on the show. Thank you to Nathan Tonhunter for mixing this episode and Emily Klaus for creating our artwork. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It goes so far. It goes such a long way in helping the show climb the charts. I mean it. I see every one of those reviews. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you are on iOS. If you're not on iOS, leave a review on Spotify. It means a lot as well. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.